On the line with us today, Marissa Franco, the author of Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Well, this is a fascinating topic, and, and what a great time to bring this up. Uh, coming out, I, I say coming out of the pandemic. I hope we are, but uh, we'll let others decide that. But anyway, after this long period of isolation and, and whatever else went along with that, um, we have your book. Um, uh, how long was this in the making, Marissa? How long have you been mm. working on this book? Great question, Steve. Actually, since 2019. So pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. All right. And I think the the question here, and there are many kind of questions to be attached to this, is we we are a country or society of uh, moving away from friendship. Is that yep. uh, is that a you know a reading I, I got from the book? Absolutely. Yeah, our friendship networks have been shrinking for the past few decades. And, and friendship network, uh, define that, if you would. Um, just the number of friends that you have. And and how do you, you know, I'm thinking, and you, you touch on this in the book, and we'll get into this, um, you know, in, in a little bit, but how do you define a friend? Because I'm thinking in the world of social media, where people are asking to be friended or defriended or whatever else is going on there, uh, you know, how do you define that? Yeah, this is a great question. So for me, I like to differentiate between good company and a friend, right? Good company is someone whose company we enjoy. Um, you know, we might be in a good mood around them, for example. But to me, an actual friend is a responsibility and a commitment to another person. It means it's someone who's going to try to show up in your times of need, someone that you can feel comfortable sharing more of yourself with, someone who's going to celebrate your successes. You know, just like any form of intimacy, you know, friendship is a form of intimacy just like any other. And so we need to invest in it, in, in it and to cultivate it for it to um, exist and for it to be maintained. And you wrote this book for who? You know, it's that's an interesting question, Steve. My drive for writing this book was really seeing how the ways that we elevate one form of love really hurts us as a lonely society. Um, you know, I questioned why should we throw even a morsel of love away just because it's platonic, wherein we don't acknowledge that you know, you have love in your life, even if you have friends, not just if you have a traditional spouse. And so I felt like that, the those sort of belief systems that we have, wherein our script for friendship is so narrow, and we see friendships as so inferior to other types of relationships, limits the ability that we can really benefit from this fundamental form of connection. To me, they're sort of like gold under our feet, but we see it as concrete. And so I think I wrote this book to kind of really challenge that hierarchy. But I, I think part of how we do that is that we give people the tools to really cultivate good friendship. And so, you know, I think so many different types of people can benefit from it. I've seen specifically, you know, people transitioning to college, grad school, people have moved to a new city, people that are retiring, people that feel like these childhood friends don't actually suit me. For example, all of us will face the existential question of friendship, if not now, then at some point in our lives. We're talking with Marissa Franco, a psychologist, a speaker, uh, has written for Psychology Today and been on Good Morning America, uh, provided material for New York Times, the NPR, uh, all that. And and so you, you've uh, you've talked about this, obviously, uh, you know, numerous times. And I'm thinking, you know, this is an area that, you know, what one 
well, you just said the, the friendship you mentioned, the friendship networks have been declining over the years. And is that a result of what? What do you what do you what do you attribute that to? Um, I so uh, Robert Putnam has this really great book, Bowling Alone. He looks at why people have become less engaged in civic groups and society. And one of his biggest conclusions that was that it was the creation of the television because the television privatized leisure. Before that, we would spend our our um, free time with others. But now we had this other option that gave us a way to spend time alone, but also to feel kind of like we were getting a snack of connection through the people's lives and stories we were being pulled into, right? And then I think, you know, if if television really amplified loneliness, you can only imagine how social media has further amplified it because again, it gives us that pseudo feeling of connection with what's called like parasocial relationships, relationships with people you don't actually know, but you feel connected to. Um, and it also gives us something to do with our time. And because connecting with people is a joy and something we all want, but it also is a risk, right? It's scary. And so if we have another option that's going to make us feel good enough, even though I would argue it's not actually good enough, then we're going to choose those easier options over putting ourselves out there to connect with people. I, I, we're talking with uh, Marissa Franco, and, and I found this a fascinating part in your book. You, you, you mentioned you just mentioned Robert Putnam and Bowling Alone, and and that's of course uh, you know sort of really set the the tone for for a lot of things. But you mentioned here one large study found that heavy social media users were either the least lonely or the most, yeah. <laughs> depending on whether social media was used to schedule in person interactions or replace them. So that's yeah. interesting right there because you you mentioned the the, the folks that are online a lot and, and maybe some people are on fleetingly uh, are either very lonely or not lonely at all. It, it's yeah. uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. You know, I wish we could see it as a tool that could foster more in-person connection. I think, unfortunately, the reality is that most of us use social media in a more passive way. Um, where we're just sort of scrolling and we're lurking and we're not necessarily engaging or fostering our in-person connections through the use of social media. So there is nuance here and social media can be a tool for good, but I think by and large, most of us don't actually use it that way, unfortunately. <laughs> like so many things. We're, we're talking with Marissa Franco and the book is platonic. And now in this book, you've got all kinds of personal accounts uh, where, you know, I guess research uh, from folks that are giving them their, your stories, um, their stories to you, I should say. And uh, th that's fascinating because uh, folks wondering, well, where do I fit into this? You can find yourself probably in this book. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, the one thing I found, uh, among other things, uh, and I guess this is what we face here. We, we, we don't always recognize it, but you quote Sharon Abramowitz, an, an anthropologist, uh, who wrote a book, uh, Tribe, on homecoming and belonging. We are an anti-human society. Our society is alienating, technical, cold, and mystifying. Uh, you know, and, and that's, I guess the mystifying part is that as human beings, we want to be close to others, but our society is, is not doing that. Is, is that something you, you kind of, uh, you obviously put that in your book, uh, you know, you, you, <laughs> you, you feel that's a, that's something we have to work against, right? Exactly. I think writing this book, it feels like I'm teaching people to swim against the tides, the currents that are pulling us in a direction towards disconnection. Right. Like if you're not active and intentional, 
our society will not feed you and bring you connection without you having to be very intentional and to try. And the other thing that I noticed in here, and it, and it follows closely to what I just said in the book, um, men, men seem men. to really drop the ball when it comes to friends. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I argue in the book that men are in a really tough place because of a phenomenon called homo hysteria, which is men's fear of being perceived as gay. Hmm. And because of that, men feel constrained to engage in all of the fundamental behaviors that create and cultivate friendship. Like I've had men tell me I can't even ask a guy to hang out because I'm not sure how it'll come off or I can't show affection or I can't be generous. Like these are all of the things that are clearly non-sexual and are essential for us to cultivate friendship. But I think men specifically have these fears that if I'm kind in this way, if I'm giving in this way, it could be misperceived. So instead, I'm not going to engage and I'm not going to invest. And and that's part of the reason why we see that men tend to invest less in friendships, have less intimate friendships and are more likely to have no friends. And that's and that's part of the the book here. We're talking with uh, Marissa Franco about friendship. The book is called Platonic. Now, you've got some interesting things in here about suggestions uh, things to do with, I mean, again, they're common sense items, but when you list them off, uh, they, they sort of like, yeah, you know, I, I should do that. I mean, that's what you think about. <laughs> I'm talking about suggestions made, you know, how to, I guess, cultivate a friendship, uh, you know, bake, cook, uh, you know, say, hey, do you need somebody to babysit the kids? Or, you know, you have a whole list of that. And, and how did you go about setting up that list? Yeah. Well, for me, I think, as I mentioned, generosity is so important for friendship. And I think generosity should feel good. And it often does feel good because, you know, we're social creatures. So what we do to benefit our relationships also benefits us. And I think the way to go about generosity so that it amplifies how good it makes us feel and it makes us more sustainably generous is to think about what are natural skills and talents that we have and how can we share those with people. So if you like to cook, if you like to bake, how can you share those with people? For me, I love to share information, clearly. <laughs> so I've literally created PowerPoint slides for my friends when I learn a new thing and I want to share it with them. So, um, you know, you can do generosity in whatever ways really reflect you and reflect your spirit and reflect your skills. The uh, other item, and I want you to explain this, if you would, the, the finding true authenticity. Now, yeah. what does that mean? You've got a whole section in the book on that. Uh, how to be authentic. Someone would say, well, just be yourself. But how do you be yeah. yourself? I guess that's that's what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's really what I struggled with because it was like um, these researchers were saying it's like your true self. And I'm like, but what is a true self? And as I delved into the research, I found that people reported being most authentic when they felt most safe when they felt least threatened. And so I sort of, my definition of authenticity then is that authenticity is who we are when we feel most safe and when we're not hijacked by these defense mechanisms that are there to protect us from threat, but that sort of replace and crush our inner core, our innermost authentic core. So just to, to, do an, to share an example of that, Steve, right? Let's say my friend's kid got into an Ivy League school. I wish my kid got into, right? My authentic feeling might be jealous um, and might be disappointed, right? But the defense mechanism might be, oh, you know, Cornell is actually not the best Ivy League. You know, there's definitely better Ivy Leagues out there. I'm protecting against that authentic feeling by using the defense mechanism of minimizing others' accomplishments. And so being authentic 
allows us to create relationships because these defense mechanisms that we're using to defend ourselves against an authentic, more negative feelings for so that we don't have to feel it, um, these clearly can harm and damage our relationships. Marissa Franco, author of Platonic. Last thing, Marissa, um, what, what do you suggest to somebody who's probably been listening to this and thinking, well, uh, you know, I, I do need to take an extra step here, uh, he or she, uh, to, to, towards friendship. Well, what, how do you guide them? Obviously, you can get the book, and we, we're yeah. promoting that, platonic. <laughs> but uh, what, what do you say to somebody just in, in casual conversation uh, to yes. get started on that road? So here's what I would tell you. I know I've conveyed that you have to initiate, which means telling someone you get along with, hey, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Could we exchange contact information? I'd love to connect further, right? But how you get yourself to that place is that you begin to assume people like you. Because according to the research, when researchers told people they'd be liked, even when this was untrue, it made people warmer, friendlier, more engaged, and in fact, became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So assume people like you and remember that to make friends, one person has to be brave. And so be brave. Good words. Be, be brave, folks. Well, Marissa, thank you so much. It's Marissa Franco, author of Platonic. And uh, we'll, we'll get out there and uh, start being friendly. <laughs> thanks, for, <laughs> thanks, Marissa. It. Thanks <laughs> for care. having me, Steve. Bye. Bye-bye.